Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 54? Psalm 54. This is a sermon series in January on prayer. In February sometime, we're going to start having prayer services on Wednesday nights um, as a way of trying to sow prayer uh, into the broader life of our church on a more regular basis. But in in this series on prayer, you know, um, the, the goal is really just to equip us to pray better. And one acronym that many of you know, especially uh, you churchgoers, uh, about prayer, many of you have probably heard this acronym, the ACTS acronym when you pray, A-C-T-S. Yeah? yeah? yeah okay, so you know you're churchy if you know ACTS, all right? ACTS is an acronym, adoration, something like this, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and and the acronym, the purpose of the acronym is to help you when you're praying have a balanced diet of prayer. In other words, it's to help you kind of identify, all I ever do is confess. I never actually thank the Lord for anything. Or all I ever do is ask God for something. That's what supplication is, right? Supply. All I ever do is ask God for more stuff. And I never actually stop to observe who He is or um, inquire what he's trying to do in my life. And so the Acts principle is a principle that, or tool that kind of gives an even keel prayer life. That's the purpose of it. So you tell me where this fits in the Acts acronym. This is Psalm 5. This is David praying against his enemies. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue, with their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. Where does that fit in Acts? Here's another one. This is uh, Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and buckler, arise and come to my aid. Brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Since they hid their Net for me without cause, and without cause dug a pit for me. May ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. How does that fit? It's not adoration, it's not confession. How does it fit? Here's another one Psalm 69. Verse 19, you know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let their fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. 
for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with the crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. Where does that fit in our diet of prayer? In our regular prayer life, well, how does that fit in these, these ideas? And there's not just a few of them in the Psalms. They're all over the Psalms. I didn't, I didn't grab the three that I could find. There is some kind of statement. These are called, the technical term is, they're called imprecatory prayers or imprecatory statements. They're angry prayers. They're uh, prayers of offense. They're prayers against the enemy. And they're not just found occasionally. There's stanzas or segments found all throughout the Psalms. There's some found in Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm number 9, 10, 13, 16, 21, 23, 28, 31, 35, 36, 40, 41, 44, 52, 54, 55, 58, 59, 68, 69, 70, 71. Do you get the picture? They're all over the Psalms. This kind of language. Some sort of statement of offense. Some sort of statement against something. It's a way of saying to the Lord, Lord, go get them. Go get them. You see them. You see what they're doing wrong, Lord. Retribution. I'd like to think these are the landmines of the Psalms. Um, you know, if you read the Psalms, the, the Psalms are considered the book of the church. For millennia, it's been called that, the book of the church. And when you read the Psalms, and particularly as the church has prayed through the Psalms, and as you use the Psalms for prayer, oftentimes these stanzas or these statements embedded in the Psalms, they disrupt our prayer. They kind of take us out of where we were. You know, you're praying a psalm, the Lord is great, He's mighty to be, you know, mighty to be praised, um, the Lord's made heaven and earth and all that is in it, and He's full of love, and your spirit can pray right along with that, and then it's, my enemies surround me, Lord, bring their heads to the grave. And that interrupts, I think for many of us, the spirit of prayer in the psalms. It's disruptive. For many of us. I think uh, for some of us, we come out of the back end of a psalm with uh, some questions. Like we've tripped over something. Or you've come out and you say, I know it's the word of God, but when I get to heaven, I have questions. In their prayers. I mean, you ask, why does this matter? This matters because the psalms are a book of prayers. Many of which, many of them are prayers. And this message series is on prayer. And when you want to learn how to pray better, the first thing I would say to you is, is do you read the Psalms? Go to the Psalms. And so this matters because the, this, this disruption in the Psalms is, is intimately connected to the idea of prayer. We, the, the Psalms are prayers and the Bible is correct. Some scholars, in a way of dealing with this trouble, this is what they've said about these, these sorts of statements. They say this. It's very troubling for biblical scholars. And they say, well, what they are is they recognize that the psalm is an accurate statement of the person praying, but not that it's necessarily right. That's what they say. Some scholars say, well, yeah, this is a prayer of David. David actually wrote this, 
but we're not sure that you should actually pray this. Which is a very troublesome door to walk through. It's like walking through a door and falling into a pit of snakes. That's like saying, well, we understand that Jesus Christ said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through him. But we don't actually know if he's right. You see the trouble we get in when we do that? We know what Paul said. We don't know if what he said is right. We know what Moses said, those Ten Commandments. <laughs> Who can really know? That, is, that's, that does not solve a problem for us. It, saw, it makes problems, that path. This is the word of God, and it's good and true. And these are prayers of men of God before the Lord. And we're called to seek the Lord in them, which is what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to investigate the Psalms. And this idea, this idea of these prayers against, these offensive prayers, and try to understand better what's at work in these sorts of psalms and what should be at work before the Lord when we find ourselves in a similar circumstance. And so what I want to do is this morning is I want us to, we're going to read Psalm 54 together and use it. It's a short psalm. It is a psalm that kind of encapsulates this principle in a, a very succinct way. And then we're going to look at, at the situation here. Let's, let's read the psalm, starting again in verse 0. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a maskeel of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me, ruthless men seek my life, men without regard for God. Surely God is my help, the Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me, in your faithfulness destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Now that's the psalm. We'll move to prayer in a second. I want to just draw a few things out of the psalm that's very common for these sorts of psalms. And, 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 and it might help you as you, in your, as you interpret psalms. Again, this is a study on prayer, but I do want to spend a little bit of time on psalm, the psalm. If you'll notice the context of the psalm, it's, it's important. The context of the psalm, before the psalm begins, there's this little editorial that says this was a psalm that David prayed when he was dimed out by the Ziphites to Saul who was hunting him down. So it, it lets you know David was in a tight spot when he was praying this, that he had been betrayed, that there, was, there were people who were conniving against him, that someone had tattled on him to a king who was hunting him down. And, and it's imp- this is important in the, to the degree that very often these sorts of psalms come in a similar sort of context. They come in a context where the person praying is the victim of great injustice. Relentless injustice. Not like something bad happened, but that the source of evil is working through humans to take the person down. Okay, that's an important element of the Psalms, as it will be in this element of prayer. And then you'll also see kind of this 
Look at the very last verse. It says, uh, I'll start in verse 6. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Now, sometimes when you read these psalms, you're like, wait a second. How is he in triumph? Wasn't he just praying because he was surrounded? And this is a very common pattern in these psalms. That there's, the psalmist is praying in a time of trouble, but the psalmist ends with, a, with a, almost a prophetic expectation of faith. Like, Lord, I'm surrounded, I'm entrapped, they've set a snare, they've set a trap, they're gonna, they, they've served gall for food and vinegar for, for drink. Like, all of this is bad, and at the very end it says, but I will trust in you, Lord, I, I know that you're victorious. It's almost a prophetic declaration to the Lord of, you've heard my prayer, and I'm praying to the right source. Now, that's a very common theme in, in these psalms. But I want to take this kind of from the psalm and I want to take it into the idea of prayer and, and how, how do we begin to trans, understand this in our life of, of prayer. And I think it begins with the idea of context. I think the reason many of us struggle with this kind of prayer is because we don't have a context for this kind of prayer. A very... Very few of you are surrounded by your enemies. Right? Really. And when we try to like brainstorm, like we try to say, no, this should be part of the ACTS acronym, nobody's saying that, right? But when you're, when you're thinking about it and you see in the Psalms, you go, I must be able to identify my enemy. Very often the enemies we identify are, they're not really respectable enemies. No one would ever make a comic book about these enemies. You know, you end up finding yourself praying, Lord, bring the head of the librarian down to the grave, for she has unjustly charged me for this overdue book. It doesn't work. There's a whole, the proportionality of it is all off. Because for many of us, we live fairly peaceful lives. It's not, it's not a bad thing. I'm just saying, part of the reason, sometimes when something's outside of our context, we want to say, well, that's not right. When the reality is, is, if it was part of your context, it might be very natural. So while it feels unnatural to say, Lord, bring the head of the librarian down to the grave, it does feel very natural to say, Lord, you see the human traffickers and what they do to children. Bring it down. Like there's something, it's, if, you get it, if you can place it in the right context, now the furnace of your soul burns the right way. But these are hot prayers. They're white-hot prayers. And they're, and, and they're heated up by righteous indignation for things that are happening all around us but may not be part of our immediate individual context. Your individual life may be very peaceable. And you may not be spurred on a daily basis to pray the way that David prayed when David wasn't hiding from the enemy. But nonetheless, we should recognize that while your individual life may be at peace, the earth is not at peace, and the church is at war. The church of Jesus Christ across the earth is engaged with unrighteousness and wickedness of all kinds and is regularly surrounded and the subject of onslaught and is the victim of abuse time and again because it stands up for what is righteous. What I mean to say is, is you individually may not find great cause to approach the Lord this way, 
But the church corporately always has cause to approach the Lord this way. Right now, we have brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the planet who meet in secret, who are separated from their families, whose homes are ransacked for the scriptures. And not just within the church, but the things surrounding the church, around the world, there are great injustices that we don't partake in. We read books about the killing fields in Cambodia. We read about the injustices in Rwanda or the Lord's army in Uganda that takes children, puts weapons in their hands, and makes them kill their parents as initiation. When the church is there, these prayers, I believe, roll off the pages. It's context. I want to say one more thing about context before we move on, and it's this. Maybe you live a peaceful life, and maybe God made you peaceful. God made some of you activists, and God made some of you less active. And that may not be wrong, but it may not be right. And what I mean to say is, if we actually think that there is no injustice around us, we are fooling ourselves. And that maybe the church and its members live peaceably because it does not turn over rocks, that it knows what's underneath. This is this year. So my journey this year is to, with the Lord, is to figure out, uh, this is my personal New Year's resolution. First New Year's resolution ever, by the way. Uh, is to seek understanding from God about the role of the church and in particular my role in the realm of these broader social issues. Like, how do I not forsake the preaching of the gospel as a primary calling and how does the church not forsake that and yet involve itself in injustice? So that's my, so I'm, I'm reading about it and this is, I don't have any answers, okay? But I have discovered something that I think is true and it's this. It is nauseating to me and I think to the outside world when the church remains silent on injustice until the injustice is is wrought upon the church. That does not work. When we don't engage and we don't engage and we don't engage and we don't engage and then the arm, the needle of the law points in our direction and we go, oh, rights, justice. The world goes, that's not an issue of justice that's an issue of selfish liberty. They don't, they're not verbalizing it this way, but we all have the check in our spirit. I'm just saying that there are things around us that we know, we know at a deeper level that if we dug and if we probed, we would find. And if we found, then we'd have to do something. And I'm saying maybe you're not an activist and the Lord made you made you peaceful, but to what degree are we doing that as a church? I'm just saying the context for this prayer may be here among us. We've just pacified it. Context is important. And I believe the context for this sort of prayer is something that will visit itself upon us at one time or another in our lives or in the life of the church. that It's not the kind of thing that, again, I don't think you sow it into the Acts principle, or you say, you know, every week I'm going to pray this way. 
uh, for the same rapidity as the other sorts of prayers. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that as you seek with the Lord, that, that the context of these sorts of prayers will visit themselves upon you. And when they do visit themselves upon you, when you find yourself in this kind of situation or with this kind of spirit, this white hot kind of righteous indignation for what's happening in the world or around us or to the church or on behalf of God's people, when this happens, we should know how to pray. We should know how to pray well. And so, so that's what we're, we're talking about this morning is, is when you pray this way, we certainly want to do it well. And so here are some ways to think about this. How do we pray offensively well? Well, I would say this is the first rule. The first rule is that prayer begins with honesty. Honesty before the Lord. So if you are going to, if you have something inside you that has you all tied up in knots, but you don't know of a, of a nice sounding way to make it come out, so you don't pray it, does that make any sense? God knows what's in you. Why are you not telling God? I, I, we, we don't want to say things unless we know they're like been fully edited and corrected. Where else in life do we not have a rough draft? Have a rough draft with the Lord. Get it out of your system. Place it before the Lord. Do you actually think you're going to convince God to do the wrong thing? Is that possible? Is God going to smite the librarian because you accidentally said it? And Oh, God's going to be like, well, you told me to. Is that going to happen? No. God, you're not going to convince fool God or trick God or give God misinformation. God knows it is in you. What do you think is happening to it when it is in you and not getting out? What do you think? If you were the parent of a child, if you were the good father of a child who loved you, would you not prefer to have conversation where the language may be somewhat incorrect, but at least it's out in the open where you can converse and exchange, rather than, well, until they can figure out how to say it in just the right way, they're not going to say it at all. Is that the kind of relationship you're raising with your child? Until you get a perfect prayer, you're not going to say it to the Lord? Name me one perfect prayer you've ever prayed. Even when you say to the Lord, Lord, thy will be done. Do you think you've fully convinced the Lord that you're saying that? I mean, really. I know there's times that we think we mean it, right? But I also... I delve, as I, the deeper I delve into myself, I know to distrust myself in prayer. When are we praying perfect prayers? Our prayers are constant, imperfect dialogues before the Lord, where the understanding and gracious God hears our heart and pulls out what needs to be worked on. And I'm saying these prayers, all prayers, but in particular these prayers, it starts with an honest exchange. If there's something that is on you, if you have a situation in your life where you feel surrounded or entrapped or, you know, you just have white hot anger or frustration with something that's just not right, I think God would rather you say something that's technically wrong and get it out. God, I got to tell you, I want you to, 
I want you to bring down fury on these people. And I think in saying it, you know what will happen? God will start to work. God will work. As words exit your mouth, God will kind of shine his light on them, and he'll work on your spirit. But you have to be honest before the Lord, or you're not praying. Number two, praying, and especially this sort of prayer, allows us to give things to the Lord instead of holding on to them. These these kinds of prayers are intense moments, intense moments of vitally important moments of things that if we keep them, they can rewire who we are and they can become intense places of hatred and and mess up who we are. But this is our chance to give it to the Lord because ultimately it belongs to Him, doesn't it? Ultimately it's His problem, Lord. I mean, the heart of these prayers, this is the heart of these prayers. Lord, I'm trying to do what you told me to do. I'm trying to be godly. I'm surrounded by evil and wicked men who are trying to take me down. Do you see it? That's the prayer. That's the heart of almost all of these prayers. David, the anointed king of God, is on the run. And David, for the next all these years, simply says, God, you see it? You anointed me. I'm trying to be righteous. And they're hunting me down. It's the Lord's problem now. These prayers are great ways of taking something that is tying us up inside and pushing it over to the Lord and saying, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And that allows us to be very mercifully Christian. Allow vengeance to be with the Lord because only He meets out justice justly. Which is connected to this idea. In your anger, do not sin. Don't allow this sort of prayer to become a mechanism of harboring hatred for someone else. This is not the green card of the Bible to say, now go you can now you can kind of use religious words to harbor anger and enmity towards another person because look what David did. No, this is not what's happening in Scripture. Don't allow this sort of thing to become personally angry. And here's here's a litmus test for it. If that person, and this may not hit home for for most of you, most of you may be quite hunky-dory, but for those of you who have that enemy, whether it's a family member, a boss, my first year in a fighter squadron, it was everybody. Right? It was the world. Right? If they come to Jesus Christ, would that bother you? Like, are you harboring so much anger that their conversion would be a bummer? Because now you got to love them. You know what I mean? Like, if you're building up all this, what you would call righteous indignation beneath the guise of the psalmic prayer book, and you're, Lord, they are the enemy, and, and then they turn around and say, I, I know I had this God experience. I came to you. I want to confess everything I've done wrong. I want to confess that I left you in the marriage, and that because of that, the kids are messed up, and that you lost your job because of me, and you went in debt, and so you spent time in prison, and the dog died, and then kids won't talk to you, and all of that, I'm sorry for. It's all my fault. Would you and your spirit be able to go, you're forgiven. Praise the Lord. These prayers preserve your soul to give grace. 
finally, and this is a big idea, but to the degree that we can talk about it this morning, we should ask, how does Christ, the work of Christ and the image of Christ in Scripture, how does it conform or how does it inform these sorts of prayers? You know, these are, these are prayers in the Old Testament. This is where we get to the Old Testament, New Testament question. Here's prayers in the Old Testament that are they're harsh and they sound. And then you have, these, you have Jesus in the New Testament who comes along and says these things. But we also know that the Jesus of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, right? Jesus is God. The Father is God. So we're forbidden from saying, well, there's a different... You know, this is totally different. It's not difference in kind. The same God is present. The same Christ is at work in the Old Testament as in the New. But in the New Testament, we see Christ clearly. We see with clarity what he means and what he's always been expressing. And then we can take that back into the Psalms and say, how then do we understand prayer, especially this kind of prayer, in the Psalms, given what Christ has said? Because at some points the psalmist says, Lord, Destroy my enemies. Strike their name from the book of life. And Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Is that to a point? Does Jesus have an asterisk and a footnote at the bottom of that? Until they're so bad, then you pray the Psalms. No. No. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. The psalm says, Lord, vengeance. I pray for vengeance. Do to them what they've done for me, right? They set a trap for me. You ensnare them in the trap. Jesus says, you've heard it was written, an eye for an eye, but I say, grace. How does that come back into the psalms and work itself out? And how does that enter into your life? How do you hold on to, at one level, this this disdain for unrighteousness and this recognition of evil and this desire for justice and yet this great heart approval for mercy. That's that's what's at work here. And here are some ways to think about that. For one, to the Christian, I would say this, that Christ has given us a confidence that extends beyond our circumstances. What I mean by that is that when you are surrounded in Christ, you are not surrounded. Like, are you really worried that they're going to take your life? If you are, that is to deny the fact that Jesus has given you imperishable, eternal life. Like when the whole, when everything around you is against you, Is your spirit in denial of the fact that Christ is for you? Where is the confidence? We have no confidence in this flesh. We are free. If we were imprisoned and placed in prison, should we feel imprisoned? Should we behave as though we're imprisoned? Should we pray against our captors as though they have actually shackled us when in fact Jesus Christ has set us free? Are you free or aren't you? These prayers, the work of Christ works together with these prayers to kind of shape for us, what do we really pray these things about? Do we really pray these, do we really have this kind of attitude of justice about things that are infringing on our own circumstances? 
I would, I would push back against that. I would say, Christ is enough in your circumstances, your present circumstances, that you don't need to be severely affected by whether you're in prison or whether you're under the onslaught. Like, like Christian life has spent trying to pursue full believing satisfaction in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That said, we still recognize justice and righteousness and the lack thereof when we see it. Justice is better than wickedness. Grace is wonderful, but justice is better than wickedness. And there's a sense of when we pray that, that sometimes what allows us to do is to have a heart of grace for the individual, to have a heart of love for the individual, but to challenge the wickedness as we see it and when we see it. That's what's at work here, this, this idea. Even Jesus Christ himself was going to do this. The book of the Bible, the Bible ends with Revelation, which gives us complete confidence that all the wickedness and injustice that has been wrought upon the earth will be dealt with by the same Christ who saves. But in our spirit, if we have Christ in our heart and a confidence that exceeds our circumstances, then we can, in fact, offer grace and offer love while at the same time praying against the evil that is around us. It's the strangest thing. You know, the church is at war. That's a correct statement. But it's at war to spread peace, which is a bizarre statement. And Christians fight for Christ. We are always active. The church should be active. But we fight with grace. I'll close with this idea. <clears throat> this is an excerpt from a magazine put on by Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs does exactly that. It gives a voice to those Christians uh, who are trying to spread the gospel around the world and uh, pay severe penalty because of it. And this is an excerpt that I'm going to read to you of a gentleman named Richard von Brand who found himself imprisoned uh, by the communists during that period of history and um, certainly you would think might have a right to pray the most offensive prayers. Speaking of his enemies, he says this, but looking at men like this, not as they are, but as they will be, I could also see in our persecutors a Saul of Tarsus, a future Apostle Paul. And some have already become so. Many officers of the secret police to whom we have witnessed became Christians and were happy to later suffer in prison for having found our Christ. Although we were whipped as Paul was, in our jailers we saw the potential of the jailer in Philippi who became a convert. We dreamed that soon they would ask, What must I do to be saved? And those who mocked the Christians who were tied to crosses and smeared with excrement we saw the crowd of Golgotha who were soon to beat their breasts in fear of having sinned. It was in prison that we found the hope of salvation for the communists. It was there that we developed a sense of responsibility towards them. It was in being tortured by them that we learned to love them. 
a great part of my family was murdered. It was in my own house that, they were, that the murderer was converted. It was also the most suitable place. So in communist prisons, the idea of a Christian mission to the communists was born. We ought not to be trapped by our circumstances. We ought to see evil for what it is. The church ought to actively call it out. It should pray against evil everywhere, in every capacity. But its members should be full of grace. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we begin this prayer reminding ourselves of who you are, that you are a holy God, that in you there is no darkness, that there is no bad thing that has fellowship with you. And Lord, we pray that as the church we might, we might grow to see righteousness more the way you see it, Lord. And we pray that your spirit would show us and convict us to know what true holiness is. And Lord, we do pray for your large church, the one church of Jesus Christ that worships on this earth. We pray for all our brothers and sisters around the planet. We pray for those who are being faithful in hard times, Lord, and we pray for those who are trying to be faithful during easy times, amidst the subtle weapons of the enemy. And Lord, we do. We begin to pray, by, pray against Satan and his schemes, Lord. We pray against those who would come against the church with evil intent. Father, to the churches in hard places trying to get off the ground, Lord, we pray you would protect them. Father, we pray you would come against those people who would be against the church, Lord. And we pray for things that are second to the church, that are beside the church, Lord, that the kinds of wicked things that are wrought all over the earth all the time, Lord. We pray that the church might come in and that it might be a light and that it might bring grace and that it might insist on justice and that it might show light amidst the darkness, Lord. And when that happens, Lord, we pray you would protect the church, your children. Lord, we pray against kings and principalities of this earth and of the spirit world, Lord, who fight against your people. Father, we pray you would keep the lamp of faith lit in some of these dark places and that you would spur the church to be active and on the move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.